Uh, we've got a whole bunch more. We got a chance to play soccer. Don Shannon is amazing at, at doing that soccer thing of falling down and trying to get a red card on somebody. He's really gifted. Byron face painting, not so much. His artistic talent is in taking things apart, not artwork. But um, oh, we had such a good time. Right there on the left is Pastor Kuko. He is the, the pastor that we got to go down with, and we got a chance to minister to people in the community where their church is. All those people there, only about 20% of them actually attend his church. 80% of them were just people from the community that we got to love on and feed. And then Pastor Kuko and his wife fed us homemade uh, chicken or fish tacos. Ridiculous. Right, stop it for just a second if you can. Can you stop this? They are so... F- Go back for just a second if you can to that picture. Okay, I may be tall, but they are fast ridiculously talented with their feet. And there are, there's Pastor Kuko. Okay, there's Pastor Kuko right there. But there's three brothers and one of the brothers' wife and their young son. All three of those brothers and their wife accepted Jesus Christ yesterday, which is crazy. Um, it's so fun. Yeah, hold, hold, can, we, can we just stop the slideshow for a second? Because I just want to... So we went in the morning, we got a chance to go and, and, and hang at Pastor Kuko's area near his church and minister to their community. Again, 80% of them were unchurched people. Those, four, those three guys and their wife are going to actually go to his church right now. They're, they meet at 10 a.m. as well. So they're going to church for the first time, and then he's going to drive them to their soccer game. So relationship ongoing. That's the part that gets me so excited is, is that we may have gone for a day but he's there ministering to him day in and day out. Then we got a chance to go to a men's rehabilitation center. 120 guys who are coming out of addiction to drugs, narcotics, all that kind of stuff, who are from very, very difficult backgrounds. Every single one of us on the team got to share our testimony. Like, like Lee has been talking about over these last couple of weeks, to be prepared in season and out to share the reason for the hope that you have in you. Well, we had that opportunity. And then some of them in that rehabilitation center began to share their testimonies with us. And it was just a powerful time to see God working. Um, and then you can go, go ahead and keep going. When the invitation to accept Jesus Christ into their heart came here at this rehabilitation center, this is the group of men that came up right here. About half of the guys, at least, of these 120 came up and, and prayed that prayer. And, you know, I, I could tell you about it. I just want to invite, is there anybody on our team for just a moment who would like to just share something that they say, saw God do, maybe in you or in that day? David Stack, of course. Yeah. All right. Who, who are you calling? Who, who are you calling, Don? I just need somebody to stand up and make a decision to come up here. Okay, if you can stand up in front of a bunch of guys doing rehab, you can stand in front of your family here at Lighthouse. Okay, um, is it not turned on? Hold on a second. Let me turn them. Ken Edwards. How long do I have? <laughs> like, just really quick, really brief. Um, anyway, we started showing the uh, film, and we had some te- technical difficulties with the the film. And I started praying about it, and uh, we ended up, I ended up taking the uh, wrong version. It was a two-hour version instead of the one-hour version. But I started praying, and I said, Lord, 
you really need to help me on this one because at this time the guys were all getting bored and um, in, 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 the con- in, in the hall. And uh, all of a sudden the project- I went to Eric and I said, hey, dude, I'm in trouble here. We've got to do something. And Eric looked over and said to me, when that movie, just skip through it, and when the, we have an issue, we'll take over. And that's exactly what happened. Um, the uh, movie ended and uh, through the difficulties, and then Eric and I got up, and then we went up on stage. And it was just amazing from then on. Eric gave a very powerful, powerful service. I mean, it was amazing. And um, I've never seen Eric jumping up and down in giving a service. Or yelling. There was a lot or of yelling. Or yelling. Yeah. And Pastor Kuka was banging on tables. Yes, he was. <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. And um, anyway, I just want to say, um, you know, we had the group of 13, a team that just loved on everybody and did an awesome job. I'm just so amazed and proud to be part of of the church and the team that went with us and hopefully next year we'll have all oh, this year we may do yeah, the we're next gonna, we're going to definitely be going down again this year yes it was probably uh sometime this year anyway we're not going to put a date on it at this point in time um and uh, anyway, thank you very much for giving us the opportunity. And to thank go you down. for all of the, the finances and the clothing that you provided. They were all given out to people, and, and it's just God did some major things down there yesterday. Thanks, Don. So we have been in this series, and it's kind of funny because the series was just kind of thrown together. But then, as I look back on on what we have been really wrestling with over the last month or so, it has all really come down to the same thing. This being prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in you. Or Jesus put it this way. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that I have taught you. And don't worry, I will be with you always. I'm not, I'm not going to leave you up there to do it by yourself. But go make disciples. This is the Great Commission. This is what we have been called to do, each and every one of us, all the way back from the Garden of Eden. Do you remember how God tells us that we are made in his image? That doesn't just mean that we look like God. That means that we have been made to be his representative. God's intention was that mankind would represent him in caring for and stewarding his creation. And when sin entered in and kind of wrecked that, And mankind just decided that, no, I'm going to be the captain of my own ship. I don't want you to be my Lord. I don't want you to be my God. Then God decided, okay, if all of mankind won't represent me, then I'm going to select a group of people who will, who will be a kingdom of priests. And he began with Abraham. And ultimately out of him came the the people of Israel. But even they didn't get it, at least not all of them. And many of them thought that they had been blessed in order to just be blessed and be comfortable rather than recognizing that they had been blessed in order to be a blessing to all nations, that they would somehow be a conduit of God's blessing out. And so when Israel didn't perfectly represent him, God said, okay, well then I'm going to open this blessing up to others. I'm going to allow others to represent me. And he sent Jesus Christ to die because each and every one of us desperately needs a Savior. Each and every one of us is a sinner. He said, now anyone, who calls on the name of Jesus Christ, gives their heart to him and follows him, gets to be a representative. 
Now you get to go. You get to be ambassadors of hope and reconciliation. And when I look at this, this idea of we are called to go and make disciples, the first thing I have to ask myself is, well, how do we do that? How do we actually make a disciple? And so all we need to do actually is turn to Matthew chapter 28, where that great commission is. If you have a Bible, grab it. We're going to spend a little bit of time here in Matthew chapter 28. Right here at the very end, it's the last couple of verses of the Gospel of Matthew. The last thing that Jesus says to his disciples. As they're standing up on a mountainside, Jesus is about to head on up into heaven. He looks at his guys that he's been journeying with for at least three years. And he goes, guys, I'm about to go. But all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because you know who I am and you know where I'm going, go and make disciples of all nations. And here's how he says to do it. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, I want to I break that down a little bit. Let's look at the baptism component first. Because there is nothing magical about baptism. You do not have to be baptized in order to go into heaven. Your salvation is not dependent upon baptism. Otherwise, the thief on the cross, when he says, Jesus, remember me today in paradise, he goes, surely you will be with me in paradise today. Unless Jesus spat on him and that counted as baptism, he hadn't been baptized. But, baptism is an external declaration of an internal decision. When somebody says, you know what? I recognize that I'm, I cannot be in control of my life. I have come to the end of my rope, and now I need somebody else to come in. I need a Savior. And they hear the good news that God does not expect us to climb some ladder of you know, good works to somehow make up for all the bad things we've done, which is what so many people in this world think they have to live by, that their good deeds have to outweigh their bad deeds in order to make it into heaven. He goes, listen... If that were the case, nobody would be declared righteous. Not a single one of us. I'm the first one to say I wouldn't be able to ever make a ladder of good deeds high enough to make up for all the things that I have messed up in. And Jesus simply said, I have come to take that upon myself. I have come to die in your place that you don't have to. And I kind of lost my train of thought, so let me think for just a second. I had no idea. I really honestly have no idea where I was going. I'm a little keyed up yet still from yesterday. What, where was I? <laughs> Baptism, that's what we're talking about. Thank you, I had no idea. I was going to just keep wandering around until I somehow figured it out. Thank you. Baptism. So baptism is not something that we do in order to be good enough, but baptism is an external declaration to other people that I have made this internal decision that Jesus Christ died for me. I need him. Fine, I'm in. It's kind of like 
When my wife and I stood at the altar and said, today I give myself to you. Today I give myself to you and we, want to, we are going to be husband and wife to the best of our abilities. And I was given by my wife this ring. Not this one because I lost that one. But this is a new one. <laughs> the symbolism is the same. <laughs> this wedding ring does not make me married, does it? No. But this is an external declaration that I no longer belong to myself. I belong to another. My heart has been given to one and I cannot give it to anybody else. In the same way, baptism doesn't make us saved. It is an external declaration of an internal decision. And so yesterday, when we saw, I'd say maybe 50 to 60 people between those two groups of people we had the opportunity to share with stand up, raise their hand and say, yes, I want to give my heart to Jesus. They made a decision. That was an external declaration. The next step might be naturally baptism because now they could get to share it with everybody else. It, it, baptism is an identification with Jesus Christ's death and burial going underwater and then resurrection from the dead as a new creation. When you come up out of the water, it's a declaration that my old self is gone. My new, I am a new creation washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm no longer defined by the things I've done. I no longer have this list of sins that I have to somehow make up for. Jesus Christ's blood covers me. That's what baptism is. And so he says, go make disciples, baptizing them, helping them, sharing the gospel with them so that they can make the decision that, yes, I want to follow Jesus Christ. But we can't stop there because that is not the end of discipleship. That's the beginning. The same way that when I put this ring on my finger... I may be a husband, but I have a lot to learn about what it means to love my wife day in and day out. Ten years in, I've still got a lot to learn. Why are you laughing, Kathy? (laughs) Don't nod. (laughs) Okay. So, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bringing them to a point of decision. Yes, I can no longer live for myself. I need you. I give my life to you. And then teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And now here's the crux of discipleship. Yesterday we had an opportunity to interact with a whole bunch of people, many of whom we will probably never see again in our lives. And if all we did yesterday is go down and scatter seed of good news, share the gospel, share our testimony with them, it would definitely be a a day well spent but I would be concerned that those people that we shared the gospel with, those people that raised their hand in that rehabilitation center that are still wrestling with the demon of addiction would be like sheep without a shepherd. Would be just trying to figure this out on their own. Because when we give our hearts to Jesus, we have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And he loves to go after young sheep who really have very little clue about what this means. And so I'm so grateful that we have Pastor Kuko and his wife and his sons and their church that are down there to connect with guys like those three brothers and say, you know what? It's more than just an initial decision. I want to journey with you. I want to do life with you. I want to walk with you. Because when Jesus invited somebody to be a disciple of his, he didn't just say, hey, do you believe me? 
Do you believe in me? Awesome. All right, see you later. What did he say to him? Follow me. That was his invitation. He never asked a single person to pray a prayer. He said, follow me. Walk with me. Watch what I do. Learn from me. And then I'm going to invite you to do things alongside of me. And we'll minister together. Now I'm going to send you out two by two and you're going to go and do the things you've seen me do and then come back and we'll debrief. That's the discipleship process, or at least that's how Jesus discipled. Which is great when you've got Jesus walking around in the flesh, but now he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And, and we don't have the opportunity that those original disciples did. So how does discipleship take place? How can we be followers of Jesus Christ? when we can't see him in the flesh? Well, thankfully, we're not the first people who've had to wrestle with this question. There's a guy in Scripture that was a very, very capable discipler. His name was Peter. I'm sorry, his name was Paul. The other P. Man, it's just one of those days. I think I'm really excited about pie. That's really what this is about. Go ahead and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. It's after... You know, it's after Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Then you get to 1 Thessalonians. If you get to 2 Thessalonians, go left. You've gone too far. Paul, a couple of times, Paul was one of those guys. He was a tent maker by occupation, but he was a minister of the gospel by vocation. This is what he did. Didn't matter if he got paid for it or not. He made tents to make a living. He made disciples Because it was his calling. It just was what he was made to do. And a couple of times, Paul very clearly in Scripture explains how he made disciples. In 1 Corinthians, he puts it this way. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In other words, watch my life. Watch what I do. You can learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ simply through watching my life. I go, man, could I say that? I don't know. But here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think he gives perhaps the single clearest explanation of what it means to do that second part of the Great Commission. To teach them everything that I have taught you. He shows just how much of a commitment of time and relationship it really takes to make a disciple. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. You can tell by this context of this that he's talking about a relationship he's already had with this this city, the Christians that live in Thessalonica. Paul had planted a church there. He had begun to minister to the people. He went in and he shared the gospel, but he didn't stop there. He stayed for a time in Thessalonica and he did life with them. He shared the good news. He shared his life. He walked with them. And so he says, you saw how we cared for you like a mother cares for her children. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and our hardship. We worked night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Hey, I made tents on the side so that I wouldn't be asking you for money, so that the gospel wouldn't be all wrapped up and 
thinking that I was doing it just for my own gain. Sadly, the church sometimes forgets that. And money gets in the way. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy and righteous and blameless we were amongst you whom believed. You can look at our lives and you can see that we are not only speaking the gospel, but we are living it out in our actions. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. So not only did we model for you, but we also spoke into your lives. If I were to say, what is discipleship? I would point to this passage and say, discipleship is sharing not only the gospel, but it's sharing your life with someone. And this picture of discipleship is one that I not only learned here, but I learned from a guy who's been discipling people longer than my parents have been alive. He's a guy named Bob Fulton. Some of you may know him. He, he was one of the original people in the vineyard movement. And he was a guy who God just said, disciple people. And he said, okay. And so he did that. And I asked him one day, How, what does it look like discipling somebody? What do you do? And Bob goes, well... I follow Jesus. And sometimes God will bring somebody into my life and our paths will kind of come together. They will be hungry to grow and God will go, that one right there. And so I invite them to do life with me and we journey together. And they bring questions and we just kind of process them. And I invite them into the conversations I'm having with God. Sometimes I'll even invite them to do ministry with me. I invite them into my home. They get to eat with my family. They get to see how I parent But all this time that we're journeying together, I'm following Jesus to the best of my ability. And then in some seasons, our paths diverge and and their path goes a different direction. But I keep following Jesus. And then sometimes God will bring those same people back into my path and we'll keep journeying together for a season. But regardless of whether I have somebody walking with me or not, I am always following Jesus because I am first a disciple, then and only then a discipler. When you look at discipleship from that lens, a lens of all you do is you invite somebody to walk with you, to journey with you, share your life, share the things that God is teaching you. It makes it a lot less daunting, doesn't it? Sure, there's the part of you actually have to be open to inviting somebody in, and, and that might not be so exciting for some of us. But let me tell you what you don't need to do then. From this paradigm, you don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to have a seminary degree. All you need to be is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And then you just let your life teach, because far more is caught than taught. And I think that the power is more in seeing it lived out, right? Our actions speak so much louder than our words. Because we live in a culture that's full of words where people are saying, believe this, believe that. But you look at the people. Say, this car, you know, they're they're selling a car. This car will change your life. And then you look at what they're driving. They're driving something else. I'm not quite sure I believe you. Right? We we live in a culture full of salesmen who aren't even willing to use their own goods. And from that perspective... 
Yes, we are called to go. We are called to go down to Mexico. We're called to go across the, the planet to other countries. But at the same time, some theologians actually say that when, when we look at that Great Commission, go and make disciples. That it's actually more of a, as you are going. That's probably a better translation, some theologians think. As you are going, make disciples. Which means that although Mexico and Africa are important places for us to be sharing the gospel, we also have spheres of influence right here in our schools, in our workplaces, in our third spaces, the places where we go when we're not at work or school or at home, and most importantly, at home. That is perhaps our single greatest area of ministry. Because I'll be the first to say it's really easy to put up a front and say, hey, here's who I am on Facebook or other social media, or even here at church. You know, you put on your happy smile where inside you're not feeling all so happy. You like to present to the world a facade of what you want them to think of you. And you hide the stuff that you're not so proud of. But it's the people that we live with. It's the people that we do life with the most that see the real us. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And it's the people we live with that get to see the real us. And so our lives, as we live them, speak very clearly about what we believe. It is our lives that that will have the single greatest impact. Um, I shared with you maybe six months ago a story that um, really has shaped probably the last year of my life. And that was a conversation I had with my wife January 1st of 2014, so about 14 months ago. It was the first day of the new year, and we were kind of assessing 2013. What What did we see and what do we want different for this new year? And I remember my wife saying something that absolutely stopped me in my tracks. She said, Eric, I really want you to be the shepherd of our home. I want you to shepherd me and our sons. I want you to be the spiritual leader of our home, but I just don't think that you're being that. And I'll tell you, it was like she punched me in the solar plexus. And I literally just go, I need a little bit of time. And I went outside to just kind of think and process and and not respond out of it. It hurt. No, not anger. Because here's the thing. It hurt. Because I knew she was right. I knew that I may have been being a, a shepherd here at church. I may have been really intentional about leading other people here. But when I got home, it's like I took that spiritual mantle off and I just coasted. And that's not to say I wasn't being a, a husband to my wife. It's not to say I wasn't being a parent to my sons. I was really uh, present or to the most of my ability. I, there were times I checked out on the phone or on the computer or something. But I was present. I was helping clean up. I was helping teach my sons how to play, you know, hit a baseball or how to swim. I was, you know, spending time with my wife. It's not like I wasn't there. But Kathy was pointing to an aspect of my responsibility as the husband of my family that I was not fulfilling. And that is being a spiritual leader of my home. Because I can teach my boys to keep their eye on a ball. But if I don't teach them to keep their eye on Christ, 
that I'm failing them as a spiritual leader of my home. My wife may teach my sons how to get in touch with their emotions or how to speak to a girl, but if she's not helping them learn how to speak to God through prayer, then she's failing them as a spiritual leader of our home. And I began to realize that I had a responsibility that I was not fulfilling. Part of the reason that was was that I had kind of thought, well, that's happening at church. My wife hears me teach, you know, that's enough. And, and my boys are across the street being loved on by the volunteers who are pouring into them. That's where they're learning. And the reality is, I was not alone in that mindset. There, there was a, a study done by George Barna, who's a sociologist, studies the church. And when they began to interview thousands of Christian homes, he found that a large majority of churched believers rely upon their church rather than their family to train their children to become spiritually mature. I was one of them. Thinking that the hour and a half, hour and 15 minutes that they spend across the street on Sunday morning is plenty, and that the rest of the week is gravy. Sadly, he also found in the same study that the majority of Christian parents don't feel like they're doing a good job of facilitating the spiritual development of their children. Shocking. Um, If you have your Bible, go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 6. You know, I, I share that Because that conversation that I had with Kathy about 14 months ago has radically altered the way that I view my responsibility as a father to my sons and as a husband to my wife. It has begun to change the way that we actually live our lives, the way we spend our time. I'll share a little bit more about that in a moment. Actually, no, I'll share it now. It's changed the way that we parent. A couple of things. My boys are hardwired to wake up 10 minutes before Kathy and I are ready to wake up, regardless of when our bodies wake us up. We are always exhausted in the morning, and they're always way too energetic. And so we had kind of defaulted to letting the television parent them for the first little bit in the morning so that we could just kind of get our bearings. And we've decided, you know what, we don't want to allow the television, we, we don't want to establish that as something that we do regularly. Because, again, these are the wet cement years. These are the years that my sons are learning what it looks like to do life. And so instead, even though some mornings it's really painful, we begin by grabbing breakfast. And my boys know we don't do anything until we grab the Bible and we read a couple of chapters. And then we pray together. And when I say we pray together, I mean we. Ethan prays. I pray. Ethan Grayson prays. And and if Kathy's awake at this point, she will pray with us. I love it. Grayson prays, and every once in a while he'll try to slip in some like potty word or something just to see if we're paying attention. How do you, how do you train a three-year-old to understand you're talking to God? Show some respect. We're working on it. Um, I, I realized that I was, when I was doing my quiet time, I, I, I tended to just kind of take care of the family, and then when I got to work in the morning... That's when I would do my quiet time, which is great. I was spending some time with Jesus, but my kids didn't see it. My wife wasn't seeing it. So I have actually made a point more now so of doing my quiet time at home so they can see it. 
And it's not just so they can see it. It's still such a valuable part of my own spiritual growth. But I'm modeling for them. We make a point of, of ministering together. That's really important in our family. You know, I've told you before, I take Ethan to Koheleth every month. Second Saturday of the month, 7 a.m., Ethan and I go. We go minister alongside a whole bunch of other people from the church, caring for the, the destitute in our city. And it's not because I get a whole lot more done when Ethan is there. Quite honestly, I get a whole lot less done. Most of it is just kind of trying to corral him and Patrick and others that are, you know, Bella, you are amazing at helping us with that. Thank you. Um, But it's because at the end of the day, what's going to matter more, that I unloaded five or six extra boxes or that my son was alongside of me caring for other people? At night, it used to be that Kathy would put my boys to bed because, quite honestly, they only want mom. They don't really care if dad's there. When I would lay down with Grace and go, no, daddy, mommy. Mm. But we have made a point now of both of us go in there. I lay down with Grace and first she goes to Ethan. We both talk and then pray with them and then we switch. And every night I'll t- share a story with Ethan. Um, and, and then we'll pray together every night. And it's such, actually he had a really hard time yesterday that I was down in Mexico because they were already asleep. So Kathy, the night before, made me do it on, on her phone. Like I had to videotape myself telling them a story and then praying for them so that they wouldn't be angry at me. So that they would actually go to bed for her, I think, at the end of the day. What I'm trying to say is I'm not trying to toot our horns. Again, this is a response to something that was really painful 14 months ago. But it has produced a change in how we're parenting. Because we recognize that at the end of the day, Danielle and all of the volunteers across the street are not responsible for the spiritual growth of my sons. I am. Kathy is. Any parents in here? You are the spiritual leaders of your home. As a church, it is our responsibility to be here to equip you to do that. But the onus falls on you. Sorry for that, but it's important for you to know it. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is called the Shema. This is the single... This is, this is for Israelites. They're John 3.16. It's even more than that. This is the prayer that they pray when they wake up in the morning. And it's the prayer that they pray when they go to bed at night. Beginning in verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Every day they are reminded that their God, our God, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, is the only God. He alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy of our trust. He alone is worthy to be Lord of our lives. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands, and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house, and on your gates. Now, I know that when we read this, based upon what we were just talking about a second ago, our natural tendency would be to look at verse 7 about impressing these things upon our children, right? 
which is true. This is a responsibility that as parents we have. However, what I don't want us to miss is what comes before that, beginning in verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. It's what Bob Fulton shared with me. It's what Paul showed through his life and his discipleship. We cannot pass on something we don't have. We cannot minister out of our own strength and expect that somehow life will come from that. We are merely branches. He's the vine. And if we're not connected to him, then how much are we going to accomplish? That was not a rhetorical question. How much are we going to accomplish apart from Jesus Christ? Nothing. Absolutely nothing of any lasting value. Sure, we might produce a whole lot of you know, flash and excitement and do lots of things, but if he's not in it, it's not going to matter one iota. Why do I share this and why am I hammering on this? Because it's very easy for us to think that being a disciple of Jesus ends with getting baptized, with making a public declaration, with raising our hands like these guys at the rehabilitation clinic did last night. I like those three brothers did that we played soccer with earlier in the day. I'm in. I need Jesus. We pray a prayer. And we are now good to go. And I'm going to go back to being the captain of my own ship. And what scares me is that Jesus said that on the day when every single one of us is going to stand before God and give an account for our lives, there are going to be some who will come up and say, God, look at all the things I did for you. I, you know, I, 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 I shared the good news. I did this and that. I even you know, gave some money here and there and I you know, donated some clothes. And he's going to go, depart from me, for I never knew you. When Jesus invited somebody into relationship with him, he never said, pray this prayer. He said, follow me. Now, I will point out the fact that that thief on the cross who said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus looked at him and said, surely you'll be with me in paradise. Because of his faith, he was saved. And I am not suggesting that we are saved by any effort of our will, by anything that we do. We are saved solely through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. It is by faith you have been saved, not by works. So that nobody can stand up and go, look what I've done. However, the invitation is not to pray a prayer and then rest and say, I'm good to go. I've punched my ticket to heaven. I will continue to be in charge of my own life. The invitation is to follow Jesus to the best of our ability, to say, I submit my life to you. The invitation is to abide in our Lord, apart from whom life is going to be a whole lot more difficult. It's going to be a whole lot more dry 
because there will not be the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those kind of things will not be produced in our life simply through sheer grit and determination. They will only be produced in our life through an abiding relationship with our Lord. And I, and I fear, and I'm speaking to myself just as much as I'm speaking to you, I fear that it is far too easy for us to rely upon our own strength, upon our own gifting, upon tradition and the things that we do and we, we sing songs that we've memorized, but we don't actually listen to what we're singing. We may even throw some money into the offering, but, but our hearts are even detached from that. It's just something that we do. But we've forgotten that it is a declaration that, God, everything I have is from you. So I give you this, the first fruits of what I have, my income, to simply declare that you are God, I am not. You are in control, I am not. My dependence is upon you, not upon my stuff. I want to be the very best spiritual shepherd of my family that I can be. But if that's going to happen, the first thing that needs to happen is I need to have a really tight relationship with my Lord and Savior. Otherwise, it's all on my strength, and I will be the first to say that I am not strong enough to do this by my own strength. Nor can we do this by ourselves. If there's one thing that this Great Commission or the, the, the trip that we did yesterday or just about all of Scripture reminds me it is that we have been created for community. We have been created to do life with others. The Dead Sea is the Dead Sea because it has a whole lot of stuff pouring into it, but it's not pouring anywhere else. You have been created to have people pouring into your life. You've also been created to be investing in other people. And I'll tell you from experience that when you get to actually invest in somebody else's life, you actually get a whole lot more from it than they do. God will teach you more as you're walking with other people. And so this morning, I want to close my time and invite the worship team up but I just want to I want to give you the invitation that our brothers and our sisters south of the border were given yesterday and that is an invitation to relationship it's not a prayer it's not a finish line it is simply a declaration that God I need you oh I need you every hour I need you I can't just pay lip service. I can't just show up on Sunday morning, punch my, you know, get my card stamped, and then go back to my regularly scheduled life. I need you in every nuance of my life, in my home, in my marriage, with my children, with my parents, at school, at work, in the shadow areas of my life that nobody else knows about. in my hopes and my dreams and in my deepest, darkest fears and my faults that I'm ashamed of that I hope nobody ever knows about. I need you there as well. So if you would bow your heads with me. I'm going to simply pray a prayer 
for me. And if you want to join me in this, awesome. And I'll just tell you up front, this is going to be a prayer of inviting Jesus to be Lord and asking him to come close. So, Father God, I thank you that you love a wretch like me. I thank you that when you look at me, you don't see the garbage. You don't see my rebellious nature. You don't see my shortcomings. You see your son. You see your daughters out there created in your image to represent you. And as you watch us, as you even this morning, as we just go, God, I need you. I need you to come in and clean me up even more. I need you to come and and just solidify our connection. Holy Spirit, fill me up. Flush me out. So that my life looks more like your heart. So that the things that I think about are more in line with what you think about. So that the things that break my heart are the same things that break your heart. So that my hopes and dreams match what you want for me because if they are then they're going to happen but if they're not then I'm just going to either spend the rest of my life fighting against you or I'm going to submit them to you help me to submit them to you God have your way with me a sinner whom you call a saint because of what Jesus has done Father, accept us, prodigals, who've been trying to clean ourselves up enough for you to be, to be acceptable. But you just can't wait to throw your arms around and welcome us home and throw a party. So God, I need you. Have your way with me. Jesus, in your name, and for your glory.